Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. We're following all the books of the Bible. We now start in the New Testament and uh, in a moment, Matthew's Gospel. But just a word about the Gospels, the four Gospels, Mike, just give us a bit of um, background. Right back at the beginning of our series, we liken the Bible to a library with different bookshelves. And we've sort of been tracking our way along the shelves and we've looked at law and history and writing and prophecy and prophets was the last main section. So as we come now to the New Testament, we've moved not just to, if you like, the next shelves along in the library, but one particular shelf of them. And this category called the Gospels. Now, the trouble is we are so used to that word in church life that we forget how impacting it was at the time. In fact, when the four gospel writers wrote, they were actually inventing, creating a new category of literature because no book had ever been called a gospel before. But it's as if the four writers were saying, do you know, the story we want to tell you about Jesus doesn't fit into any of the categories of writing that you had in the ancient world. Like, you know, there were categories that were biographies or categories that were about their great actions that they'd done in life. But, well, they wanted to tell you about his life. They wanted to tell you about his great actions. But it's like there was more than that. And so what they did was they took a word that existed in another context and reapplied it. The, the Greek word for you, for gospel, sorry, is euangelion. Change the U to a V and you can see evangelion, evangelism, evangelical, evangelist. And euangelion was used in a particular context. At that time, whenever emperors or the king had a message to proclaim to his empire, he would not be able to send it out on uh, a tweet or a, a WhatsApp. He had, of course, to send a messenger out to do it. And so imperial messengers were sent out across the empire with this message and they'd go to the local town squares. And a bit like the town criers that we used to have in England many years ago, they would go to the town Square, And what they needed to do was to call everyone to come and listen. And the word that they shouted out in Greek, remember Greek was the international language still of the day, they would call out euangelion, euangelion, which meant an announcement of good news. And then they would share the good news as everyone had gathered, you know, the emperor's just raised your taxes or whatever it might be the announcement of good news would be made. And the gospel writers in the early church think, yes, that's exactly what we have in telling you the story of Jesus. We have got a euangelion. We have got an announcement of good news. And so these four stories of Jesus are, yeah, there's some biography, but not all of it. There's lots of things we'd like to know that we're never told about. It's big chunks between the age of 12 and uh, and his later life when he starts his ministry we know absolutely nothing about there's all sorts of things we might like to know so they're not biographies in the 
normal sense of that word. They are stories of the life and actions of Jesus that are designed to be presented to us as the announcement of good news. And that's what we've got in these four Gospels that we'll be looking at. So a helpful reminder that actually Matthew, Mark, Luke and John didn't call their writings Gospels themselves. Matthew didn't say, I'm now going to call this the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there's no there's no names given to any of the Gospels. Like we sometimes get with the prophets, we'll get the word of the Lord that came to Isaiah, son of Amos. But we can work out who wrote each of them, sometimes by a mixture of internal evidence within it itself, sometimes by the earliest of church traditions. And of course, when these Gospels were initially written up and circulated, they didn't need to do that. People knew whose story this was. It was passed around the churches where they were well known. And it was only as these gospel stories started to spread beyond the sort of circle of churches that these four apostles were involved in, that there came the need to identify them. Oh, by the way, th- this is this is the account of Jesus that Matthew wrote up. And then, of course, as they were identified also, gathered together into this presentation of good news. What I guess is exciting about Matthew's gospel is that he was an eyewitness. He was one of the 12 that was with Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And what an eyewitness uh, and what a transformation of an eyewitness it was because we find the story of what happened to him in his own gospel in Matthew chapter 9 where we discover that he had been a Roman tax collector. Now, for any good Jew at the time, that was just beyond the pale. Why? Because they were seen as both cheats and collaborators. In those days, Rome wanted its taxes, and the easiest way of doing it, rather than people filling out tax forms and eventually paying your money, was to send a tax collector out. And this tax collector would have bought the right to collect taxes in a particular area. He paid a lump sum to Rome. Rome got its taxes up front. And then he started to gather the taxes. Of course, he wanted an extra cut because he'd paid the money up front. So Rome obliged by providing him with a soldier to be alongside to just give you a little friendly prod with his sword if you needed to, to enforce the payment of taxes So they were seen as collaborators. They were collecting for Rome, but they were seen as cheats because they were also palming off some for themselves, adding additional money. So that's the background that Matthew comes from. Uh, By the way, he came from a particularly wealthy tax collecting district. He was based in Capernaum, which was just to the north of uh, the Sea of Galilee, major trade route just passed along its edge. So there were lots of taxes to be collected there. Herod Antipas also put taxes on fish. So you can see he went down well with the fishermen. So you can imagine in those early days as Jesus was gathering his disciples, there were people like Peter, James and John, the fishermen, having to rub shoulders with this guy who would tax them beyond belief and Jesus calling them to be together. So a really interesting choice of character. And yet, you know, 
all the stuff that's happened in our past life, God can use and weave together. And he does that with Matthew because what is one of the things that Matthew would have needed to do as a tax collector? That is, he would have needed to pay great attention to detail, to facts, to figures, to writing, to organisation. So that he got his little books there with all his taxes paid and who was owed what. So an organiser, a writer, a puller of things together, a a man of detail as well as overview. And that's exactly the gift that God uses in him when it comes to writing his gospel. Nothing is ever wasted with God. So we can take it that this is a pretty reliable account from somebody who was there. Is it therefore just a sort of official biography of Jesus? It's not a biography as such. You know, we've got four Gospels. Why four? Because we're getting sort of four slants, four viewpoints on the life of Jesus as each of these very different characters, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, saw it uh, or at least had it reported to them. We look at that when we come to Mark and Luke, who obviously weren't eyewitnesses themselves. But Matthew and John, absolutely eyewitnesses and therefore definitely authorised to write these biographies, definitely there with the material. And, you know, I often imagine Matthew just out of the instinctive training, making little jottings as he went along. This was his life. This is what he'd always done. You know, you'd just seen Peter come in with fish in his old life. There it went down in his little book. So this would have been normal for him. So this is why I don't find it difficult at all to think of how they were able to remember such detail. One, the Holy Spirit's helping them when it comes to writing, just as Jesus promised he would. I'll send you the Spirit and he will remind you of all things that I've taught you. He's quoted as saying in John's gospel. But Matthew, this guy who was just accustomed to jotting things down, and I think he would have jotted lots of the things down so that when he can pull it all together under the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit, yes, he can give us this true account of the life of Jesus as he sees it from his perspective. And I suppose in a sense he was also like an editor. He chose what he wanted to include and not include as a result. And so what is his focus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's where we see the difference in some of the Gospels. We'll see that some of them are a little bit more interested in this than that. This should never be seen, by the way, as the Gospels contradicting one another. Uh, Any more than, you know, today if we read four newspaper accounts of an event that happened we'll find a particular slant on them. These days, it's often with a particular point they're trying to make, of course. But we acknowledge, don't we, today, that that people have different slants. In court, I have a friend who serves as a magistrate, and, you know, one of the things uh, they look for in court at times is sometimes the little authentic differences that can validate something if four people came out with exactly the same account, word pat, you'd know what had happened. They'd been trained, coached, and it's sometimes the slight differences that you can thoroughly understand and explain that sort of validate this. The big overriding theme for Matthew as opposed to the others is he wants to show us that Jesus is the fulfilment 
of the Old Testament story. So this story that we've tracked over previous episodes that go way back to the beginning of how God created human beings and they turned against him and how from the beginning God had a plan, a plan to deal with sin, but also a plan to build a family of faith for himself, a plan that began with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel and tracking their story through and how that leads to this one man, Jesus, the Messiah that had been promised throughout the Old Testament and seen with increasing clarity by some of the prophets. He is the one who is going to fulfill this story. So Matthew's a really good gospel at reminding us, don't think just because we've turned to the bit saying the New Testament or the New Covenant, that this is a new story. Absolutely not. This is a continuation of the old story and yet more than a continuation. It's a continuation and a fulfillment of all that had been promised there. So if you've read the Old Testament and then you flip over to Matthew's Gospel, there will be a number of occasions where you think, I've read that before. Yeah, absolutely. And Matthew, in particular, will often quote from Old Testament prophets. He will actually say, this was to fulfill what was written in the prophet. So he's linking the story very much with what happens and wants you to know that. So things like the story of the virgin birth, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. So we'll see that happening again and again. One of the other ways, by the way, that he links the story is in a way that, frankly, uh, we wouldn't start a story in the way that he does because his gospel starts with a genealogy, a list of family lines and members. And for us, I mean, that's, that's just a turn-off, isn't it? Which is why, for me, I never give Matthew as a first gospel. If someone was searching and wanting to know about Jesus, I wouldn't give him Matthew because it, you really need to understand quite a bit of the Old Testament to get the best out of it. Give him Mark or Luke instead. But Matthew begins with a genealogy, it begins with the words, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he's instantly linking us back and he does it through, here's the accountant in him, through a block of three blocks of 14 names, listing the key genealogies that link Jesus right back to Abraham. They probably don't include every single name. That's not how genealogies worked in the ancient world. They often picked out the key figures. But he's linking this. He wants us to know that this is that story that is continuing today. And so he sums it up, that intro. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to Christ. Why 14? Because 14 is twice seven and seven is the perfect number. So this is perfect, perfect, three times perfect, perfect, that this is the man who absolutely fulfills that story. And I'm going to tell you about his story right now. 
Does Matthew just leave it as a message for a Jewish audience? Uh, not at all. One has to say his his focus is first and foremost to a Jewish audience. He he's writing for fellow Jews who've become Christians, fellow Jews who were interested in exploring the story of Jesus. So that's why we get so much in, in terms of imagery that relates back to the Old Testament, quotes from the Old Testament, even hidden little things like he gives us five blocks of teaching of Jesus. Why five? Well, he's echoing the five books of the Old Testament that were given to Moses. Here is a new Moses. So there's an awful lot of that. But it's not just confined to them because Matthew is writing at a time, and we didn't mention the time, but it's probably sort of late 50s, just into early 60s. He's writing at a time when many Jews were starting to reject Christianity not just seeing it as, uh, you know, accepting as possibly a, a valid subgroup of Judaism. This has nothing to do with us. And so it's written at a time when many Jews were rejecting the whole message of Jesus. And so at that time, he also intersperses in his gospel teaching that shows this was never intended just to be for Israel. So, for example, there's there's teaching about the kingdom being taken away from the Jews and given to a people who will bear its fruit in chapter 21. And the way the gospel ends, of course, takes us way beyond the Jewish nation, what we call the Great Commission in chapter 28, where Jesus sends out his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So it looks well beyond the sort of narrow confines of Judaism, though though that's his big passion. It's his people. It's who he's writing for, first and foremost. It's interesting as well that Matthew mentions the word church. It's mentioned four times in his gospel. But here what he's envisaging is, is a church made up of Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus, and it will be this sort of, in inverted commas, new Israel of believing Jews and believing Gentiles that will carry the message forward that started way back with Abraham. Jesus knew the Old Testament, so there are so many occasions where he is quoting what he was brought up with that actually relate to himself. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, he he use he both uses the scriptures in his own life, like he will use them in chapter four. He'll use scripture to withstand the the devil's attacks. But he also, as you rightly say, fully understands that he is the one whom all those scriptures were pointing to. And even where he doesn't directly sort of say, this was about me, he uses so much of the language and imagery that is there. And we'll see that even more so when we come to John's gospel, that there was no doubt in his own mind that he had come as the fulfillment of that story. So in Matthew deciding carefully what he has chosen to include, what else 
is he trying to underline about the focus that Jesus had? He emphasizes a number of things about Jesus. Clearly, we've said that he fulfills those Old Testament prophecies. There's quite a focus in Matthew's gospel on Jesus being the son of God. This is not just another rabbi. This is not just a, another prophet. This is Jesus, the son of God. And there's a lot of focus on Jesus as being a great teacher, but yet more than a teacher. He's a teacher who is bringing a new law. We mentioned about the five blocks of material that he carefully constructs. We find that well-known uh, section in Matthews uh, 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Clearly they're uh, a reflection, an echo of Jesus going up the hillside to teach, just as Moses had gone up the mountain to get the teaching from God. So there are these elements. Some of the other elements that he includes, Matthew teaches an awful lot about God's kingdom. He often calls it the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. Why? Because writing for a Jewish audience, Jews tended not to like to use the name God. It was seen as too holy. So they often substituted the word heaven. So rather than saying, may God help me, they would say, may heaven help me. So when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not thinking about a future thing or a different thing to the kingdom of God. He's just reflecting Jewish sensibilities. And much of that teaching about the kingdom comes out in parables. Uh, parables are rich in this gospel. A lot about discipleship, quite a lot about the return of Jesus as well. You mentioned parables then. That's a sort of style of communicating, a style of teaching, really, is it? Yes. Parables were generally, as told by Jesus, sort of short, punchy stories. And if I could give listeners sort of one helpful hint in reading parables in Matthew or in any other gospel is parables generally have one main point. Don't go looking for little hidden points in, in every nook and cranny. You know, uh, that has been done in church history. Even the great St. Augustine interpreting the parable of the Good Samaritan gave meanings to, to everything, even down to the four legs of the donkey representing the, the four gospels and the inn representing the church. You know, that parable was told to answer the question, who's my neighbor? And the parable, the whole parable is the answer to the question, who's my neighbor? So when you're reading these parables in the gospels, there's generally one main point. A second key thing is to say there's often a twist in the story, an unexpected twist or a, a sting in the tail. It, it has something that you're not expecting. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, actually I've chosen one there that's not in Matthew, comes from Luke's gospel. Uh, but there's often a twist in the tale or he'll pick up something that's happened in recent events or a lot of them are about things that happen in everyday life. Most of Jesus's parables are about everyday life. So if we pull myself back for a moment and get back to Matthew, there's that whole bunch of parables in Matthew 13 that are about things like sowing seed and, and harvesting and growing plants and, and gathering fish and sorting them out. Things from everyday life, and yet they often have a, a little twist to them, 
at some point that's that's an unexpected sock on the nose, as it were. Why do you think Matthew needed us to know or the readers to know that Jesus needed to use parables to communicate? There's an interesting passage in Matthew 13 where Jesus answers the question, why, why do you teach in parables? And the answer he gives in short is because parables both reveal and conceal. For those with an open heart who are searching, they reveal God's truth. But for those who know it all already, and he's thinking there particularly of the Pharisees who get particularly castigated in this gospel, who knew the answer and whose hearts were pretty close, parables end up hiding the truth. He actually quotes a passage from Isaiah at this point to to back it up. So they both reveal it. If you will have an open heart and say, God, what are you saying here? Parables reveal some incredible truths about the kingdom of God, what it's like, how it operates, how we can participate in it. But if we come at it with a haughty attitude of these are stupid, simple stories, I know this already. At that point, our hearts close and we miss the profound truths that Jesus wants to reveal to us because we've decided we know this already. It's interesting you said that Matthew, being a Jew, but being known perhaps as a cheat and a collaborator, but I guess becoming a changed person, was happy to be critical of his own faith within the religious life that existed at the time. Yes, and and I think that's, you know, that's quite important because I, I might be treading on sort of thin ice here, but there can be some circles in Christianity today where ever to criticise Judaism today or anything that modern Israel does is seen as anathema. And my answer to that is always, well, the prophets never hesitated to criticise when they did things wrong, and Jesus never did. And Matthew certainly doesn't in the material he gathers. He's obviously quoting Jesus's teaching, but gathering it. So, for example, in Matthew 23, uh, he records some woes of Jesus against the Pharisees, this group of religious practitioners who thought they were wanting to live out the law of God faithfully but had got so consumed with their own interpretations of those laws and their own demands of how those laws should be expressed, that they had become blatant hypocrites. Hypocrites who not only couldn't do this themselves, but then put these loads on other people and then told them off for not doing it as well. So he's unafraid to do a sort of radical critique uh, of his own roots. And I think still for us today, as Christians and in the church, we, we shouldn't be afraid of being critiqued because if there are valid criticisms there, as there were of the Pharisees, we, we shouldn't be hesitant to say, do you know what? We aren't lining up to the gospel there. And that's a pretty good criticism of us. Thank you. We're going to give attention to that. And interesting that Matthew would have been seen as a hypocrite himself as a tax collector. Oh, yes, without a doubt. Uh, Before he was a follower of Jesus, absolutely. And I still think in those early months, there must have been some interesting conversation. And I'm not sure the other disciples would have always wanted to walk next to him until Jesus had done his work in them in increasing measure. 
So, yeah, he knew what it was to be accused to be a hypocrite, but he was a hypocrite who found freedom and release from his past life and who was genuinely now trying to be a follower of Jesus, trying to bring this story of Jesus, his life, his teaching. By the way, we should include his miracles, an awful lot of his miracles, because, uh, you know, Jesus' teaching tells us what the kingdom is like. His miracles show us what it's like as the sick get healed and lepers get cleansed and the dead get raised. These, these are powerful demonstrations of what happens when we let the king into our life and let him begin to rule. And, and so Matthew presents both teaching and miracle as a sort of two-pronged fork so that we get the message of Jesus. So if you were to sort of sum up why you would recommend reading the Gospel of Matthew, what would you say? It's a really full account of an awful lot of Jesus's life. It's the longest of the Gospels. And so we get an awful lot of detail there. And it goes really, and we've obviously not had time to look at the detail today, have we, David? But it goes from his conception to his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. So it's the whole span of his life. But I think it's great in particular for seeing how the story of Jesus is not a new story, but is the continuation of the old story. So like I said earlier, it's never a gospel I give to people who are wanting to explore Christianity. It's not the best book. But for those of us who've been Christians for some time, it's a great book at seeing the depth of Jesus's teaching, how he fulfills the Old Testament preparation, but also how all that it was pointing to comes to a climax, not just in his death and resurrection, but actually in his coming, in his coming, in his life, in his teaching in the way that he lived, in all that he did, and yes, in his death and resurrection and ascension. This is what that story was preparing for. And Matthew is so exciting at helping us to see how this story fits in with that story, yet launches us on as it sends us out into the whole world to take this story out to everybody and to see now where this story will go. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Tavener. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.